Please turn with me in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 13. Matthew chapter 13, for those of you that are new to using the Bible, that can be found in those black Bibles on page 818. Matthew 13. We're going to be reading from verses 24 to 43 in our text of Scripture. We're working through Matthew systematically. It's a biography of Jesus. That would be a simple, short way to explain it. And we want to get to know Jesus, who He is, what that means for us, and as I said earlier in the service, so that we can then participate in worship and engage with what God is doing in the world. Perhaps the most frequent question that people ask Christian pastors, leaders, teachers is, why? Why does God not do something? Why doesn't God do something? Tragedies happen. Horrific accidents devastate lives and families, and so we ask, why? You could fill in the blank with, us. imagine, a hundred things from your own life. In my life, I've been asking the question, why, when on Easter weekend, my wife and I found out we were expecting a fifth child, only to find out later that this child did not make it, that an ectopic pregnancy was a baby stuck inside of the fallopian tube, and surgery then was the result, and a child was lost. Why? Why does God let things like that happen in my family? or your family, or in the world? Why are there bullies in the schools and in the government forcing their way on people and crushing the weak? Why does it seem so many times evil and suffering does not have a consequence and they just get away with it? And why is it that so many of us tenderly and sensitively ask God, why does it seem like you're silent? When will you finally step in and stop all of it? There is no really good answer to that question, but our passage points us the way forward. If you have any hope to try and walk through the difficult life that is before you, I'd urge you to open your Bibles, if they're not already, and follow along as I read Matthew chapter 13, verses 24 to 43. He, being Jesus, put another parable before them, saying, The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a man who sowed good seed in his field. But while his men were sleeping, his enemy came and sowed weeds among the wheat and went away. So when the plants came up and bore grain, then the weeds appeared also. And the servants of the master of the house came and said to him, Master, did you not sow good seed in your field? How then does it have weeds? He said to them, An enemy has done this. So the servants said to him, Then do you want us to go and gather them? But he said, No. Lest in gathering the weeds you root up the wheat along with them, 
Let both grow together until the harvest, and at harvest time I will tell the reapers, gather the weeds first and bind them into bundles to be burned, but gather the wheat into my barn. He put another parable before them, saying, The kingdom of heaven is like a grain of mustard seed that a man took and sowed in his field. It is the smallest of all seeds, but when it has grown, it is larger than all the garden plants and has become a tree, so that the birds of the air come and make nests in its branches. He told them another parable. The kingdom of heaven is like leaven that a woman took and hid in three measures of flour till it was all leavened. All these things Jesus said to the crowds in parables. Indeed, he said nothing to them without a parable. This was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet, I will open my mouth in parables. I will utter what has been hidden since the foundation of the world. Then he left the crowds, and he went into the house, and his disciples came to him, saying, Explain to us the parable of the weeds of the field. He answered, The one who sows the good seed is the Son of Man. The field is the world, and the good seed is the sons of the kingdom. The weeds are the sons of the evil one. And the enemy who sowed them is the devil. The harvest is the end of the age, and the reapers are angels. Just as the weeds are gathered and burned with fire, so will it be at the end of the age. The Son of Man will send his angels, and they will gather out of his kingdom all causes of sin and lawbreakers and throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth then, The righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their Father. He who has ears, let him hear. The outline for this morning's message will have two parts. There's many things that we could cover in this text. If you have many questions, then it was because you were paying attention as I read it. Here's two questions that I think will help us see the big idea. First, when will God do something? Second, how will God do something? Once he finally does it and finally takes action, what's that going to look like? And so we're going to take these one at a time, and we're going to start with that first question. When will God do something? Answer, it's going to be slow. Slowly. It's slow, but it is coming. Let me explain what I mean. The key to these parables and one of the main themes is timing. It is about timing of when the harvest comes in our first parable. A man sows some seed. He goes to bed at night. They wake up. And then as the seeds start growing, they realize that there's two kinds of plants growing. One's a weed and one is a wheat a weed or a tear, some old translations have. You don't like weeds in the garden, right? We saw last week in our text that when you're trying to farm something, weeds can choke out what's good and growing. But the issue here is about timing. The man says, it is not time to separate the wheat from the weeds. 
the leaven goes into some dough, and over time, it spreads. Or a mustard seed plants into a ground, and over time, something that was very, very small becomes something nine, ten feet tall. The question is about timing. Jesus is speaking in pictures and symbols about a period of history, but the problem about reading this text, as I tried to illustrate the last two weeks, is the way that we too often read this about our time and not their time. The timing to which Jesus is referring to here needs to be asked this way. When is the beginning of the parable? When is the seed going out? Too often, we read it this way. The seed is us going out through the message of Jesus. So the starting time is the seed sowing at the beginning of Jesus' life. We now are further down the road, 2,000 years And that we're now at the end or closer to the end of the harvest. Typically, we think of the little mustard seed going into the ground as Jesus' life into the ground. And then later, the church becomes this giant bush, or as Jesus calls it, a tree. Even though it was a bush. We'll get on to that in a minute. It's about timing, but which timing is he referring to? For those of you that were here last week, you'll know that the timing is not the timing of your life first and foremost. It'll apply to your life, but you got to give it a minute first. You've got to be patient. It's going to be slow. Hopefully the sermon's not that slow, and you're just like, when's he getting to the good stuff? The timing is the ministry of Jesus as the harvest, not the seed. The seed is the nation of Israel. The seed is the people of God. The seed is God planting his people all over the world. If you know the story of the Bible, you know that God chose a people, and then because of their sin and rebellion, they were left their land, and then the Bible said that God would replant them, but when he replanted them and returned them to their land, they were spread out all over the world. And so now this time went by, and it seemed as if God's people were spread out all over the place. And then as they were, they were sometimes mixing in with Greeks and Romans and intermarrying with people that were not Jewish, and therefore they were compromising on their views and their religion and their ethics and their morals. There was wheat among the weeds amongst the people of God, and so the question is asked, When is God going to get things right with the nation of Israel? When is he going to pull out all the weeds and get his people together again? Jesus answers that question by saying that it wasn't time then, but it is time now because the harvest is here. He is inaugurating the harvest. He is the one that said earlier in Matthew, The harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few right now. This is a very different way of reading the parable. I know for many of us we see the other way of reading it. Jesus is the owner of the sowing the the field. The devil sows some tares into the church, and so the church has some of you in here are followers of Jesus. Some of you are not. Which one are which? Oh, we don't know. Jesus says just wait till the end and it'll all be worked out. That's 
not a bad application. It's generally somewhat true, but it also is not the point and can lead you astray. Similarly, the mustard seed can give you the idea that Jesus is the seed that goes in the ground and then out blossoms a large church. And for 2,000 years, the church has only grown and expanded. Is that generally true through church history? Yes, it is. But that's not what Jesus is talking about here. These readings are not entirely wrong, and the history of the church has followed these patterns. But Jesus is not the beginning of the time period. He is the end in all of these illustrations and stories. He is the climactic fulfillment of the promises of God, and he is the one that's bringing all of the coming age to an end. So this is the the key little moment, I think, to hopefully click it in your mind as to what Jesus is talking about. Did you notice in terms of timing that it says in verse 39, the harvest is the end of the age. That tells you what the time period is. And many of us, we read that and we think, that's the end of the world. That's not the end of the world as we think of it as the heavens and the earth and the coming full final judgment. Jewish people thought of the world as this age and the age to come. And that when the Messiah would come and establish his kingdom on the earth, then that age would be over and the new age would come. Jesus is that king. He is that Messiah. So therefore, he is telling over and over again, the kingdom of heaven is here now. That means the old age is over and the new age has dawned. Therefore, to read that the end of the age is the harvest is to read Jesus at the end of the story, not the beginning of the story. Why does this matter? It means that Jesus is looking into the eyes of all of these different Israelite men and women, Jewish people, and as they're wondering, why? Why are all these mixed peoples and opposition coming against Jesus in his lifetime? It makes so much sense. Jews that were living prior to Jesus' coming were trying to remain faithful to God and his word and the Bible what they called the Torah, the Hebrew Scriptures. But so many of them compromised, and the question that they would have been wondering is, when is God going to make things right? And Jesus is announcing through his arrival right now. But it took time. It didn't happen overnight. That period that I just referred to was easily 400 plus years from the replanting of Israel and spreading them all around to the time of Jesus. That's, that's a long time to wait. Would you all agree? Like you're, you're dead after 100 years if you live long. So we're talking four, five, six generations come on for the people of God to finally be like, he's not coming, is he? It's just never going to happen. We're just going to keep waiting and waiting and waiting. But then Jesus says, no, I'm here. Many times it looks as if the Lord is doing nothing. And it seems as if he's tolerating compromise, tolerating weeds to live among the weeds. And Jesus is coming to tell you that now is the judgment. Now the prince of the world is being cast out. Now Jesus and his angels, that word is just messenger, by the way. It could very easily not be like angels in the heavenly realm, but just messengers from God. Jesus and his 
messengers will separate the wheat from the tares, the very thing he told them. The harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few, so pray to the Lord of the harvest that he will send laborers out into his field and he will bundle up the wheat from the weeds. Now is the end of the age. The Son of Man has come into the world to gather the wheat, and there is a judgment coming. I think the same can be said about Matthew 13 in terms of the mustard seed as the time of exile. And then Jesus is saying the kingdom is now here and a a bush, a tree is going to be a place for all the nations to come under. The leaven is placed within the lump at the time, not of Jesus, but earlier in the sowing of the exile. Same concept. They mean the same thing, just different metaphors. So, That then means, for you and I, an important lesson to learn. God's people are constantly dealing with the question of when. When is God going to act? When is he going to do something? When is he going to make things right in your life, in this community, in this world? When is he going to deal with evil and be just? The first thing we need to realize is that it takes time. God's ways are slow, at least as we count slowness. But he always comes. He will come. In fact, we're living on the other side of this parable in our time period of reading it now. You need to realize he has come already. When you are longing for God to do something in your life, when you're asking that why question, when is he going to make things right in the world for me or for us? We must remind ourselves he already has started it. He already has entered in. He already has got his hands dirty into the dirt and the mud and the mess of our lives. Therefore, we are people who must wait with patience, but not like people that are in a dark room wondering, will someone please come and bring a candle? Rather, we wait with patience like people who in the early morning know that the sun has already started to rise and we're just waiting for the full brightness of its glory on the noon day. Do you see the difference between those kinds of waiting? There's a lot of darkness around in the early morning when the sun starts to rise, but you see the light and you know the sun keeps coming up. That's the day you live in right now. It's not utter darkness. It's not complete darkness You're not waiting for some spark of light. A bright light has come. Jesus is that light. So friend, do you know that God has already entered into the world and done something? Yes, already done something about evil and suffering in the world. Do you have faith to know that God cares about your suffering and evil? Cares so much that he will get intimately involved with it. And have you realized that if God were to end all evil and suffering right this minute, right now, then he would put an end to many of us and many of your loved ones. We live in a time where he has not yet fully done his work. He has come, the sun has started to rise, but it is not full brilliance yet, and the kingdom has not fully arrived yet. But we must know as we wait, this is a passage about waiting, about the time and the process that it will take before God acts, but he will act. How do you know? 
Because he already acted through Jesus Christ by sending his son into the world. And that is his intimate, caring, involving, and dealing with suffering. God cares. He wants to do something. In fact, he cares far greater than all of us in this room combined. Let me, let me illustrate that for you. Let me explain it and hopefully make it real simple for us. God, the creator of everything, is so good that he cannot stand evil. He can't. And when you look at evil, you'd be like, well, he, he let that happen. Oh, friends, that is such a shallow and immature way to think and process your life and walk through this earth. God cannot tolerate evil so much so that he is going to deal with it far deeper and far greater than you and I would have ever imagined when we wanted him to act. So, for example, I would imagine all of us here would hate abuse of children. I hear that in the, the prison systems, it's like, you're bad, but then if you do that, you're really bad, and it's like, you don't want to be that guy. If you tolerate and you think that it's okay to abuse little children, if you don't think we should do background checks and make sure that the workers with our children are not criminals, then something's wrong. We, we don't tolerate abuse, physical, sexual, mental, spiritual abuse of children. It is pure evil. So then you and I might groan and ask, then why did God let that happen again? And then we bring up an occurrence. But God cares more deeply about children and the abuse of children than you and I would ever he so badly wants all sexual abuse of children eradicated that he does not just want the physical abuse. He wants every lust of every human heart purged. And that's what I mean by him caring about it in a deeper way than you and I don't. Do you care about getting rid of evil to that degree? The very lust of the heart that leads to all kinds of abuses like that? If we're honest, the average person around the earth would say, no, that's okay. I mean, everybody does it. We all got a little lust. We're not perfect. We tolerate it. But Jesus says, you have heard it said, do not commit adultery. I say to you, if you lust at a woman, you have committed adultery already in your heart. That's because God is much, much more holy than you and I. And therefore, he wants to do with evil something you and I could never do or even long for. Put an end to it forever in every human heart. Not by punishing and getting rid of all the humans. By the way, that's the whole point of the story of Noah. You guys ever heard of the story of the flood? If not, read Genesis 6 to 9 later today, this afternoon. It'd be an interesting read if you've never read it before. But the short story is this. The world is really evil. God is going to wipe out evil because, as we've been saying, he cares about the world and it's evil. It grieves his heart, Genesis 6 says. He's grieved by it, hurt by it. So if you've ever thought, you know, if God would just get rid of all the murderers, they'd be okay. But then at some point, you just keep going, and then the murderers are gone, and then it's like, well, what about the drug dealers? What about the thieves? What about the gossips? And eventually we get to 
your sins and struggles. Are we, we want to get rid of those too? So this is what the story of Noah tells us. Even if we start over with the most righteous person on the face of the earth, as soon as he gets that start all over, he ends up passed out and drunk and some sort of weird sexual occurrence happens between some family members. That's Genesis chapter 9. That's the end of the story. It's interesting, I told you. But what's the point? Start all over with the most righteous person in this room and it will be a mess. Therefore, we need something different than just wiping out all of the face of humanity. A new start's not going to do it. We need the change of the heart so that people stop sinning from here to then out there. That's why Jesus is saying that I'm going to do something now about this with his coming, and then he dies, he rises again, and he pours out his spirit so that new creatures are made. We can't have a gospel that doesn't include the outpouring of the day of Pentecost and the Holy Spirit. By the way, this is Pentecost Sunday. In the Christian calendar, Christians for ages have been celebrating the outpouring of the Spirit of God because this is the agent that God has come to say, I'm going to do something about that evil. I'm going to change people from the inside out. But it'll be slow. And you're going to need to be patient. This is God's plan. Plan A was not get rid of everybody, because does any of you really want that plan? Get rid of all of evil. All of you that have done anything slightly evil this week, you're done. I don't like that plan. I, I kind of like to live. Okay, then we'll only get rid of some evil. Which one's it going to be? And who draws that line? God's plan is the third better plan. How about we actually change the very hearts of the people and write the law of God on their hearts and make them new creations from the inside out and it'll be like a seed. It'll be planted in and then it'll grow and slowly over time they'll be whole new creatures. So friend, are you here today wondering, am I a Christian? Most people don't wonder that question but I want you to wonder it, all of you in this room right now, are you a Christian? The parable parables that we have read says it will be clear over time. We should be slow then to make judgments about ourselves and about other people. The main point I think in terms of the details of the wheat and the weeds is that the weeds are not your typical dandelions out in the grass when you all think of weeds. It's a specific word. It's darnel. It looks just like wheats. The weeds look just like the wheats until they grow big enough to show their difference. There's a long time where you look at them and they're like, I can't tell the difference between the two. That's because judgments about who the sons of the kingdom are will happen over time. There's a lot of people that want to quickly say, yeah, I'm a Christian because I had some moment, some temporary fleeting joy to follow God or read the Bible or get interested in church. And then it doesn't last over time. It takes time. It's slow. We need to make sure that we understand another detail of this. Jesus says that the field that the wheat and weeds are in is not the church, but the world. And too often people have used this passage of Scripture to say the church is a mixed assembly of people, 
mixed, meaning Christians and non-Christians, are a part of the church of Jesus. That is not what this passage is teaching. It's very clear. Jesus says that the field that the seeds are being planted in is the world. And the world then has a mixture of people who are the sons of the kingdom or the sons of the devil. Christians, non-Christians, Jews or non-Jews, depending on which time period you're in. If you're in Jesus' time, you'd either be like a true faithful Jew who's longing for the Messiah, and then you see Jesus, and then you're a true son of the kingdom. If you're a Christian, that's me. Jesus is my Lord, Savior, Master. The church is not mixed with a bunch of half of you in this room are non-Christians and half of you are, non- are Christians. And when I say that, let me just quickly, briefly put a parenthesis by that. This is an open, public, anybody can come. This is not a gathering just for Christians. I know primarily most of you in this room would identify yourself as a believer of Jesus, as a follower of Christ, a Christian. We are more than happy and welcoming and want any of you, any of your friends, any of your family members who are atheists, who come from different political backgrounds, different ideas or concepts. This church should be welcoming, loving, big two arms, hugging, Maybe not literally all the time that kind of overwhelms visitors and people. But welcoming to anyone from any nationality, any ethnicity, any educational status, the church should be welcoming and inviting to all. But what I mean is specifically who really is in the church. And the way the Bible talks about that is anyone who has the Spirit of God in them. Anybody who declares Jesus is Lord. Anybody who confesses with their mouth and says, Jesus is my master. I want to follow him. Jesus has forgiven me of my sin. Jesus has died on the cross. Jesus has rose again victoriously over death. Jesus is reigning and ruling. Is that, is that who you think Jesus is? If so, and you've confessed this, you've declared this, you live as if that's true, you're a Christian. More than likely, most Christians do the first sign of being a Christian and get baptized. So if you've been baptized, it's because people around you said, yeah, seems like you're a Christian. So the church should be compromised of Christians. And the reason why that matters in terms of, again, another side parenthesis, is that there are lots of churches that will baptize people who don't love Jesus don't even know who Jesus is. To put it simply, this is the main reason why our church does not baptize infants, a tradition that's gone on for hundreds of years that I think has no biblical basis in it. And too often they use passages like this one, those who baptize infants, little babies, and say, well, the church is a mixed assembly. You never know. Maybe that child will like Jesus one day. Maybe they won't, but the church is mixed up. No, 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 that's not what Jesus is talking about. He's comparing people who are true members of the kingdom against those who are not in the world, not the church. That was a long parenthesis, but it's, it's done now. It's extremely important, though, that we catch some of these details to know what kind of expectations we have about the kingdom of God. What kind of expectations do you have about the speed of the kingdom in your heart, in your life? Is it about days, weeks, and months, or about years, decades, and generations? Do you set your goals for what you're going to get 
God to do and you work together and I'm going to get this changed and worked out in my life and it's going to get fixed next week or next year. These parables are about patience, about waiting, and about trusting in the timing of God. So if you're still alive today and you're still breathing, it's because God is patient with your sin and your foolishness. And no matter how much of a mess of your life, how much you've blown it and thought, that's it, I'm done for, here you are. You're alive. Your heart is beating, your lungs are breathing. And God is giving you what you do not deserve. He is patient. He is allowing time for you to repent. And so many of us want God to just fix things and act now the way we see the world. And that is so limited. The whole concept of God is that he sees and knows all and you don't. So quit demanding him to act now in the way that you can't see the big picture. But remember this, just like in Jesus' day, he did come. God did come and bring a harvest. So there will be another harvest, and there will be a time when he returns. And if you think he is moving too slowly, you need to realize he is moving and he is coming. Will you be ready for it? Will you be one of those gathered in the barn as a wheat or burned with the weeds. That's our first question. Let's conclude and, and think about this last question. Just briefly, though, how will God do something? How will He do it? Silently, subtly. If the first answer was slowly, the second answer is silent and subtle. It's there, but you don't always see it. It's there. The tiny little mustard seed is planted in the ground. It's there. It's growing. But you don't really see it. And it doesn't seem that all impressive. Jesus calls this mustard seed that becomes a bush, it's a big bush, about nine feet tall. He calls it a tree. At this point, some of you might want to object and say, Jesus, do you not know your botany? A bush is different than a tree. A mustard seed doesn't become a tree. It becomes a bush. It's not very scientifically accurate. The mustard seed produces a shrub, not a tree, and Jesus calls it a tree, I think, deliberately, purposefully, to make a point, a point that only makes sense if you read the first half of the Bible, the Old Testament, and you read Ezekiel chapter 17, and you hear about an allegory of exile and returning from exile, and in fact, we read Ezekiel 17, it says, and now God speaks to Ezekiel through a parable. And the parable is about a tree. And the top of a tall cedar tree is taken to another city, and this is all talking about the Babylonian Empire taking the Israel and putting them in another spot. And then finally, God will bring it back, and then when he brings it back, it'll be this tall, big cedar tree, and all the nations will come like birds sitting on his branches. That's Ezekiel 17. Does that sound familiar to you all? A tree that's planted and then all these birds start living on its branches. Oh, that sounds exactly like what Jesus is talking about. Maybe he's referring to the big tree, the big tall cedar tree of Ezekiel 17. I think he is, but if he's not, he's definitely got Daniel on his mind. The whole book, 
The phrase about they will be like son of righteousness is almost a direct quote from Daniel chapter 12. The phrase the son of man is the sower of good seed is a direct connection to Daniel chapter 7. The idea of burning in a fiery furnace sounds familiar to Daniel. And this whole concept of a tree being a nation and having birds underneath of it is the dream that Nebuchadnezzar gets in Daniel chapter 4. In other words, I think what's going on here, to just put this real simply for all of us today, the whole tree and shrub thing is Jesus is pointing out that the people of Israel were expecting a big, tall, giant nation that's going to be powerful like a big, mighty cedar. And Jesus calls the little shrub that's nine feet tall a tree. It's laughable. If you would have had the expectation of these giant cedars and by comparison saw a mustard bush so pathetically small in comparison and say that all the birds of the nations are going to find their refuge on the branches of this bush, you might laugh. (laughs) That? That's the kingdom? But that's Jesus' point. Israel was planted in a field as a tiny little seed, and ta-da, it became a bush. And you look at the bush, and you think, it's not much, not impressed. And you compare it to the other nations and the other movements, compare it to Rome, compare it to Greece and Persia, compare it to the United States military or some sort of superpower in any modern-day era, and you think, the church seems weak. The church is not where the action is at. The church seems insignificant. Getting busy in the work of the church seems like a waste of time. Let's get busy in stuff that really matters. Let's get involved in politics and the work and the government. And by no means am I trying to say we shouldn't get involved in some political matters. And if you want to even make a profession of it, the point is the comparison, the the heart behind it. This is what really matters. The nations of this world, they're the big tall cedar trees. They're the movers and shakers. But instead, you have the tiny, little, unsuspecting leaven getting put into a giant ball of dough. Giant. The little leaven that mixes throughout all of that dough, it would have fed an entire village. I know that we didn't have like the metric system or something in there to translate it for you, but there's the quick translation. He's talking about a giant ball of dough that a little bit of leaven will mix out through. It's small. It's hidden. In fact, it says that she hid it in. It's subtle, but it's there. It's there, and it's going to do something. It's going to eventually produce bread. The tree is going to be enough room for all of the nations. There's a hidden meaning here. God is working like the leaven. He is working like the seed, the little mustard seed. He uses despised things, overlooked things, to overturn those that the world prizes as glorious and great and honorable. He uses you. The constant identity question that plagues so many of you, especially the younger generation that is struggling with depression and suicide at alarming rates. Who am I? What significance do I have? Be a child of the kingdom and you will be subtly, secretly, silently, 
making a difference that will last for all of eternity. As all of your friends go for big jobs and big paychecks and giant big accolades that will come crashing down as soon as they breathe their last breath and will have nothing to show for it. You, my friend, invest yourself in the kingdom of heaven. It'll be silent, it'll be subtle, it won't be very perceptive, but it will be worth it. Do not trust your senses. We do not walk by sight, but by faith. We need to trust in God's word more than what you trust with your own eyes. There will be a harvest there will be the kingdom fully flourished. And even when there are times when it looks like things are corrupt and messed up and you're wondering when is God going to act, he's working. One very practical thing for all of us to do in light of this is to be in relationships with people who have been Christians and studied the Bible longer than ourselves. Here's the reason why. I mentioned at the beginning of this message that my wife and I experienced a, a bit of a tragedy and, and lost a baby. The reason in part that we found out that we lost this child was because of the technology of ultrasounds and knowing that she was still testing pregnant, but there was no baby to be found inside of her womb. I don't know if you've ever seen an ultrasound before, but it makes no sense to me. And then they like change the color on it to show the blood flow. And I'm like, wait, what is going on here? It looks like something somebody would look at when they're like high or drunk or like, whoa, like trippy. Like it doesn't make sense to me. So why is it that this person is giving very important advice for my wife and I on how to live? Life or death matters in terms of if this baby doesn't get removed and continues to grow. Internal bleeding could lead to my wife's death. So what do we do? We trust a guide, a doctor, and a technician who can see what we can't see. And says, I see something right here, and I think it's an ectopic pregnancy. And so we get surgery. And it hurts. Anybody like surgery? You do when it's going to save your life. God sometimes wants to use his scalpel and cut in and do work. And if you were to just be told, tomorrow morning you're going to wake up, somebody's going to start cutting your body open with a knife. You'd be like, no. But if it was to remove a tumor that was cancerous that could save your life, you'd say, sign me up. You need a guide. You need somebody that can see something that you can't see. So practically, all of us in this room, at some point in your life, you're going to get to moments where I'm just not seeing it. I can't see what God is doing. I can't trust him another day. I'm struggling. You need somebody to come alongside of you, put their arm around you, and say, listen, just like the doctor and the ultrasound technician said, it's not like abundantly clear, but there's good reason to keep pushing forward, and here's the plan. There's no other way to live, my friends. When you don't think God is working, you need a friend that says, no, he is. I love that the church is not a mixed community of Christians and non-Christians, but mixed of new Christians 
and people have been around the block for decades. And those older saints need to be prized and cherished and prayed for. And more of them, please come to our church because we desperately need all these young folks sitting around here. More and more older saints that can look at young people in the eyes and say, trust me, he's faithful. He did it again and again and he's going to do it again. You got you to take my hand. I'm going to be your guide here. Because the ways of the kingdom are silent. They're subtle. And that's not the kind of kingdom anybody was expecting in Jesus' day. And it's not the kind of kingdom you or I, if we're honest, really want. We like big. We like fast. We like now. But it's the kind of kingdom you should expect if the king of the kingdom brought it, established it, sealed it with a cross. It's the very kind of kingdom you should expect when he comes as a little infant baby born in the backwoods house of Bethlehem, of a poor couple, as the great kings and trees and giant nations are looming over a small little seed who seems silent and subtle. It's going to change the world. And so it has. And here we are today. And the outpouring of the Holy Spirit is changing and transforming lives. So, my friends, will you be participants in this kingdom or just spectators? Let's close in prayer. Our Father in heaven, we want to thank you for sending Jesus, the King, into the world. Not to condemn the world, but to save it. Not to destroy everyone's lives, but to make things right by letting his life be destroyed on our behalf. Thank you for Jesus. Thank you for the cross. Thank you for its subtlety, for its silence. Like a sheep led to the slaughter, so was the King of kings and Lord of lords silently mocked, abused, scorned, and said nothing We thank you, God, for this kingdom. And we pray that your spirit will give us a heavy dose, a shot in the arm of hope today. That you have done something about evil in the world. That you are continuing to do something through your spirit. That you will finish the work that you have started in each of us and in this gospel story called the kingdom of God. Give us patience. We hate waiting, God. We just want to be honest right now. We hate waiting for things. But we want to trust your judgment and that your ways are better. So may we live in community now with people all around us that are going to put their arms around us and walk with us as we wait and we wait and we trust. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.